the National Archives podcast series. This talk is part of our Big Ideas series and is called Artistic Practice and the Archive. It was presented by Professor Andrew Prescott and recorded on Tuesday the 20th of February 2018 at the National Archives, Q. You might think from my title that I'm an art historian uh, or that I have a particular expertise uh, in, the, in artistic practice, but that's not really the case. I, by training, I'm a medieval historian. I did my PhD working in the National Archives on the records associated with uh, the Peasants' Revolt in 1381, the Great Uprising, uh, led by Watt Tyler, um, famous uh, for the words of John Ball when Adam delved in East Spam, who was then the gentleman. Um, I was fascinated by the way in which this extraordinary event in English history was recorded in such enormous detail um, in judicial records in the National Archives. And this was the sort of thing I, I cut my teeth on and which will, really still gets my blood racing. Um, is an indictment against rebels taken within a couple of weeks of the revolt in Kent. So you've got a sense of being very close to the event. But what particularly fascinates me is the way you can see, for example, the big word in the middle there, Dartford, has been scrubbed out, been erased, and, and put in how Maidstone's been added here, how names have been put in. And all that seems to have happened as people uh, accused of involvement in the revolt were being interrogated, as information was being pieced together. And the way in which that sense of closeness to the event is mediated by the activities of the clerks and the officials who put this together and is integrated with its nature as a craft object is something that's fascinated me since the days when I was a postgraduate. So another example of the sort of things that um, uh, I, I work with, and this one's interesting particularly because it's been opened up by the digitisation and calendaring of the ancient petition series here in the National Archives. So it's only recently been identified as something telling us about this particular rising, and it's a, a description in the petition by a woman called Marjorie Tawney of how she went to the Tower of London during the revolt um, in order to plead a case concerning her inheritance and describes the chaos in the Tower of London at the height of the revolt. So again, there's a sense of closeness to the event, but also it's in this uh, professional scribal hand in French, mediation and the way in which uh, the object, the craft object of the manuscript, mediates our engagement with this material. And that sense, I think everyone who is, works here and is involved here with records uh, comes across, is that the records that we deal with um, are as much crafted objects um, as they are information. These were some of the more challenging documents I used when I was a postgraduate. Nowadays, I find it difficult actually to lift them up, and I'm very grateful that so much of them have been digitised because I can't move them about so easily anymore. Um, but the, these are roles of the Court of Common Pleas. And you can see that actually quite interesting 
craft constructions of the Middle Ages. They're not simply uh, 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 simple records. They're quite complex objects. And their nature as objects carries a lot of symbolism with it. To my mind, that's supremely illustrated in the tally stick, uh, those receipts used in the exchequer, notched in order to um, uh, indicate the amount that they were worth, which seemed to me a fascinating intersection um, between medieval administration and medieval craft. And that intersection between administration and craft is something that has always intrigued me. We tend to think of information as something that is separate from the medium in which it's carried. Um, this is something that's been fundamental um, to uh, information theory since the pioneering work of Shannon, uh, called Shannon in the 1940s. Um, and that idea that there's a distinction between information and medium, between Morse code as information and the telegraph wire that's carried over, um, has been very fundamental in the development of computing standards. The, one of the key standards that we use in digital humanities, the text encoding initiative, um, uh, offers as a sort of fundamental view um, that the text should be separate from the medium in which it's carried. And how that's best represented uh, has been a source of discussion around the work of the text encoding initiative for some years. And these ideas are also fundamental in XML, the markup language standards uh, that are very important in the way that the web currently runs. But thinking back to my experience with medieval records, um, I've always wondered whether we should see the information as so distinct from the medium which preserves it. It seems to me if you're thinking about medieval court rolls, you're thinking about medieval manuscripts, literary manuscripts, tally sticks, a lot of what humanities scholars are concerned with is actually that interaction between the medium in which the information has come down to us and the nature uh, 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 of the medium. It's the way in which the text interacts with the fact it's on a tally stick. And um, archive objects come in these huge varieties of shapes and sizes. And I've always felt that in understanding them, one needs to understand that shape and character of the material much more. So when digital humanities came along, when we started to see much more extensive imaging of uh, objects in libraries, museums and archives, I became very interested in thinking about ways in which uh, digitization could actually engage us more closely with the nature of the objects, the nature of the manuscripts that we're dealing with. And that was why I got very involved in a big project in the 1990s for the digitization of the Beowulf manuscript in the British Library. The Beowulf manuscript was badly damaged in a fire in the 18th century, then conserved in the 19th century. And there are readings that can only be made out under specialist light conditions. And if you just read an edition of Beowulf, you wouldn't be very sure about that. But if you look at this image of the manuscript, you can see how there are bound to be issues about how we interpret those words marked with boxes in this image. We were also interested in the fact that digital imaging enabled us 
to take images of letters that are concealed by the Victorian conservation work. So it enables us to explore the nature of the manuscript and hidden, uh, uh, difficult-to-find material in the manuscript much more easily. So for me, the key interest in digitization um, has always been the way it enables us to explore the material objects that we're dealing with in libraries and archives and understand more of their structure. It's not simply about searching, it's about understanding the complexities of the text that we deal with. Five years ago, I was appointed as what had the grand title of, uh, I'm not quite sure it leads up to it, the Theme Leader Fellow for um, one of the strategic themes uh, operated by the Arts and Humanities Research Council, um, uh, the leading funder of uh, Arts and Humanities Research in this country. And this strategic, strategic theme was called Digital Transformations. And when I started out as Theme Leader Fellow, I thought a lot of the projects that we would be dealing with would probably be very information-based, um, that they would be very much about the uh, effects of being able to link data uh, uh, more extensively, about new types of visualisation, um, that it would be very much a data-driven activity. But to my surprise, I forgot about the artistic side of this, the art side, found actually that the transformations often had a very material component to them. We got involved in projects like this, which was um, uh, the uh, Weaving Codes project, um, which looked to uh, explore and investigate the relationship between weaving, the idea, early ideas of computer programming came from weaving looms, um, the relationship between weaving, making code and computing, and ran these wonderful Tanglebot uh, workshops um, where uh, robots were made using thread um, and these connections between these different craft activities were explored. Or we had performances. This is Hester Reeve at Sheffield Hallam University who in her various performances has interrogated ideas that um, are familiar to us around the artistic archive, um, organising performances like this around the canonization, uh, uh, the, 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 the um, uh, theoretical structures within art history, um, uh, or uh, actually arranging performances in art stores. Or there's this rather wonderful project from Dundee, The Self-Reflector, which is an internet-enabled mirror that takes a picture of you, uses an age algorithm, to guess your age, and then plays music from the decade in which you were a teenager. And it works with a surprising degree of accuracy. These weren't the sort of digital transformations I was expecting when we started out working on this program with the AHRC. These were very, very different um, types of uh, uh, approaches and were challenging, again, the way I thought about the materiality uh, of these. And uh, in particular, I valued conversations with a very distinguished artist at the Art School of uh, Art Institute of Chicago, Eduardo Katz, who over a period of 20 or more years has pioneered different talks of poetry using different technical media 
ranging from typewriters and fax and photocopiers in the 80s through to some of the pioneering digi digital um, uh, uh, poems and then on into um, uh, more recently space poetry and biopoetry. Eduardo Katz's work um, has kind of made me think about the way in which artistic practice can help us reimagine text and think about text as an object. Um, as an illustration, first we'll show you a brief video clip of a work he did in 1985 for the French um, video text service called Minitel, which was a, a phone-based uh, uh, internet service that was available then. Um, it's called Abracadabra. So if I hand over to Emily, she'll show you the uh, video clip uh, of Eduardo introducing this work. This piece is entitled Re-Abracadabra, and it's from 1985. It was actually displayed online in 1985 on the Minitel network. My work uh, has always been very interested in undoing this mode of thinking that is predicated on, on oppositions. There, in other words, binary thinking, where you have the word over here, the image over there. So I have always tried to create works that were predicated on a worldview that does not operate based on binaries. The work starts with a triangle. Subsequently, you see a rectangle. This group of two-dimensional forms evolves into a three-dimensional letter. Consonants are placed in a orbital path around the vowel, like a subatomic particle would be, or a moon of a planet. And when you finally understand this, black curtain down. If you want to see it again, you have to push another button and request from the server. So Eduardo's work from a very early date started me thinking about um, the ways in which we shape text and whether we could think of text in different structures. And something that brought this home very strongly to me and which seems to me to have a strong archival relevance is a poem that he made, a digital poem using virtual reality markup language called Letter, um, in which um, uh, uh, text from different letters from different members of his family is kind of mashed up into this spiral uh, vortex to the point you can't actually see where the different bits of the letter belong. So it's making us think about different shapes of the letter. So again, Emily, we've got no sound on this one, but you'll be able to see how, uh, in this particular digital poem, you can explore the letter from every angle. So when the video starts, you'll, uh, you'll be able to see um, how... Uh, you can go through the poem, in the poem, around the poem. And really, when you see the live uh, poem, you can investigate it from every different conceivable angle. I suppose the question would start to be, can we view other types of text in this way? And is it helpful to us to view other types of text in this way? Uh, does this assist us in thinking about forms of visualisation? So I, I found letter as a poem to be a particularly um, powerful way 
of rethinking the sorts of texts that I encounter uh, in uh, an archive. Well, I think we can move on, Emily. Got the idea. <laughs> Thanks. So, the questions I want to put over as the big idea um, this afternoon is really how does artistic actis, uh, practice of the sort that we've been looking at offer possibilities for me as a researcher developing my understanding in exploring and exemplifying uh, the archive? There's been a long history of artists engaging with the archive, but digital technologies enhance these possibilities. And also, I think we're, our views of the archive are changing. And as we start to incorporate more sound, more artefacts, more film into archives, I think our relationship with artistic practice uh, will become more important. But I think engagement with artists, conversation with artists, looking at artistic practice can make even more transformative uh, conclusions. It can affect the way we think about the performativity of the archive, the way we put the narratives around the archive over. It could certainly change the way we visualise archives and actually affect the way we then we think about the role of the archive in culture and society. We've already seen to some extent how uh, artistic practice can help us think about digital technologies in the archive, but as other technologies come along, I think that again can have an important mediating effect. And this all raises the question of interdisciplinarity and how we talk across different disciplinary uh, and training backgrounds in the way I've been trying to talk across in the past few years. So I'm going to give you just a few examples in this talk, um, which come from conversations I've had around my work on the digital transformations theme. It's not a representative survey, but I think it gives some idea of what's going on. I think the first thing to emphasise is that we're already, it seems to me, becoming increasingly conscious of the way in which archives provide material for uh, uh, artistic and design practice. Uh, indeed, at the National Archives here, I think your design collection, uh, based on the Board of Trade Records, is a very interesting uh, uh, initiative in that respect. And that the British Library, I think something that's emerged very much from the British Library Labs activity, is the way in which making um, public domain flicker images of material from the 19th century collections in the British Library freely available has acted as a huge impetus towards the British Library's engagement with artistic practice and has led to projects like David Normal's Cabinets of Curiosity which uses this public domain material to create a collage artwork and was exhibited at the famous Burning Man Festival in Nevada and then at the British Library. And there have been other projects of this sort, a very interesting uh, initiative was the Half Memory Initiative at the Time and Weir archives that invited artists in to engage with the archives producing Richard Dawson's set of folk songs inspired by Tyne and Weir archives called The Glass Trunk, or a combination of film and music with warm digits in their uh, album and film interchange. And just to give you kind of flavour of the sorts of things that can emerge, 
um, I will have a quick burst from the, uh, the Warm's, Warm Digits Project Interchange, which is an experimental film and album inspired by the um, drawings of the Tyne uh, metro system. So Emily will give us a go of that. Emily, over to you. That's a very good illustration of the sorts of uh, uh, artistic collaborations that are possible um, around the archive. The other interesting feature, it seems to me, of recent developments in the archive is the fact that as we've broadened out our understanding of what the archive is, that brings artistic practice more closely to engage. As we, for example, accept that quilts can actually be an interesting artefact to hold in an archive and reflect traditions and understanding that aren't otherwise expressed in the archive, we come across to engage with um, other practices. And this is a very interesting example, Joyce's quilt, uh, a quilt that was made by a variety of women from different nationalities, which was inspired by the memory of the tragic story of a woman who died uh, in a studio flat and whose body laid undiscovered uh, for a number of years. And uh, quilting, I think, is interesting in terms of bringing these other materials into the archive, but other media also enable us to engage with practice. Sound is particularly interesting. And this example is by uh, a colleague of mine in Glasgow, Mark Vernon, who's a very expert field recorder. Um, has produced a number of pieces um, which really create sound archives or sound programs. Um, this particular example that we'll hear a, a short clip from is from a portrait that um, uh, Mark did in sound at the Fourth Valley Royal Hospital. And we'll start it, and Emily will take us through to about 13 minutes to uh, just hear a little burst of Mark's work. Alarm. Um, there's obviously something wrong and we need to attend to it so they tend to be quite loud and when they go off you, you automatically pick up on it Having a perfectly silent ward is 
mildly disconcerting because you expect roads to be quite busy and quite noisy and I think that's what sort of gives you the sort of indication that there's something going right. If it all gets really quiet you know that something's gonna go wrong so I think that does actually play quite an important part, yeah. Well, if I do a run of days, I tend to, occasionally, I can, when I'm away from the environment, you tend to hear the alarms, you know, in your head, because if you, especially if you've had a really tough day and the alarms on the machines have been going off a lot, if you've had issues with patients and the alarms are going off a lot, it tends to get that, take a while to get that noise out of your head after a while. Um, it's not that I find them particularly annoying, but it's just how they kind of linger in your head if you've heard them a lot. Thanks Sometimes. Much, Not often, but okay. But so you get the idea. Um, I think it raises the question as to, in thinking about medical archives, for example, how important is it to have sounds uh, in that? So definitely, uh, as we shift the boundaries around um, in terms of the nature of the archive, that raises question about our engagement with artistic practice. But I want to look also at some examples where it seems to me artistic practice can make a more direct intervention. And one of these is in the way we think about the performativity of the archive and the way we read and use and engage with the archive. And I've already mentioned the work of, of one researcher who's been prominent in the Digital Transformations uh, pro uh, program, Hester Reeve, uh, Sheffield Hallam University, who's made some very interesting performance interventions in thinking about the archive. This project of hers uh, was the re-inaugural meeting of the Emily Davison Lodge after the death of the suffragette Emily Davison. Davison um, uh, uh, a lodge was founded by her friends to perpetuate her memory through reading and art. And Hester's and Olivia's intervention here was intended to draw attention back um, to the importance of those suffragettes um, uh, traditions of literature and their archive and to actually argue the case for its greater prominence. And uh, that was, uh, what, eight years ago, but is certainly now feeding into the ways that one might think about some of the Suffrage 100 activities. So that kind of performance can make a useful intervention this can actually become rather more technologically um, uh, uh, um, uh, interesting. In this project, which is another from the Digital Transformations, the Marginalia machine. And the idea of this is that it's based around a series of artistic interventions relating to the archive of the poetry publishers Bladax um, uh, in Newcastle. And what this uh, particular project does is that it scans the editorial annotations in the poetry archive. So it doesn't scan the poems, it scans the comments by um, the editors and um, then reproduces them uh, uh, running out uh, on the, uh, 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 the rather beautiful marginalia machine. So if you could show us the first video, Emily, of those... That will give us some idea of how the marginalia uh, uh, machine runs. It's, uh, and it's, it's, it's a very beautiful, but it, 
makes you think again about the shape um, uh, 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 of the archive. And the, the captions here will um, uh, give you some explanation as to what goes on. So you'll see how there are all these annotations. And the interesting question is, you know, do you, how can you read the poems in a different way if you just look at the marginalia? Um, and this is really what the marginalia machine does. It changes our perspective um, on the way in which we think about the content and the priority um, uh, of the uh, archive. Um, it does it all on the fly. So technologically, um, it's actually actually uh, quite um, interesting. But you pull out those comments, and it gives you a different perspective on the boundaries um, of the archive. If we have the second video on the slide, Emily, then uh, this will show the marginalia being coming out on this rather wonderful sort of steampunk almost. Uh, marginalia machine, which we displayed at the VNA uh, machine at the VNA museum uh, 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 a couple of years ago. So it's a performance activity, but again, it's um, shifting our perspective um, on the nature of the archive that we're dealing with. And I think that's where artistic performance can have a particular uh, uh, impact here. So there are the marginalia being reproduced. Thank you very much, Emily. I will nip on to the back to the slides now. There we go. I'll skip this one. I think the other important area that's, that at the moment has a great deal to contribute is in thinking about new modes of visualisation. Scale, as I think everybody here uh, will be aware of, um, is the most enormous issue in all archives. Even if I'm thinking about my medieval records, the website I now use, which I'm very grateful to the National Archives and to the University of Houston for, the Anglo-American legal tradition, has over 9 million images. And you kind of think, well, couldn't we have OCR for this? But if I had OCR of 9 million images, I would just drown in a sea of text. I don't know what I would do with it. And the sort of issues I've got just with images of medieval records a tiny by comparison with the issues posed by born digital records. Uh, you think about the email archive for the Bush presidency, which is an early starter on this, still got over 200 million messages. And it's, you're not going to just type Iraq into, that, into a search button and find out what happened in Iraq uh, with 200 million messages. Or WikiLeaks, which has published already over 3 million diplomatic cables. How do you get to grips with that? And the interface with art and with design, I think, is going to be increasingly important in thinking about these visualizations. Some of you will be very familiar with the work of Mitchell Whitelaw, the University of Canberra, who I, I see as a, a real leader in this area. I was going to show the video, but I don't think I will here. Um, I'll explain. This is a project that's now eight years old, and a lot of its thinking is actually... actually bled over into mainstream archives by now, and you can see uh, elements of it in the TNA project traces through time 
um, and the way that's thinking about the browsers. And fundamentally, this is a representation of different archival series. And uh, the, uh, the size of uh, each box um, indicates uh, uh, the amount of room it occupies on the shelf. The inner box indicates the number of documents. Um, you can use this browser to look at interconnections between the series. You can use it to look at which agencies um, produce the series. Um, it kind of creates what Mitchell Whitelaw calls is a generous interface, a different, more visual interface for the browser. And it provides us with a macro view, uh, difficult to appreciate in a screenshot like this, but if you look up the video, which I recommend on, on Vimeo, you can see a demonstration by Mitchell that shows how um, all this uh, works through. So at one level, artistic practice can help us with thinking about issues of scale by offering different approaches to visualisation of all types. But at the other, it can also help us by taking a more micro uh, view. And um, I mentioned the WikiLeaks material. This is a project by a colleague of mine called Michael Takio Magruder, who was a colleague of mine while I was at King's College London, which is about a specific, rather mysterious file um, in the WikiLeaks series. And Emily, if you could fire up the video, uh, Michael will explain something about this, which, as I say, is another interesting approach to how we deal with the sorts of masses of information that we've got. Michael Takeda Magruder. I'm one of the artists involved in the exhibition. My piece, Insurance AES 256, is an installation that explores a particular incident um, from WikiLeaks. After they released their Afghan war diary documents, the organization posted on their site a, a file that was 1.4 gigs in size. Um, they didn't say what it was, no information was given about it, and it spread like wildfire throughout the internet, being downloaded countless times by so many different kinds of individuals. As the file spread throughout the web, there was a lot of rumor that started to sort of circulate about what the nature of the file was. 
Was it information that was too dangerous to release now but needed to be kept for future generations to consider? Was it perhaps uh, blackmail against the U.S. government in order to protect the leader of the group, Julian Assange, who was ever facing increased pressure and uh, court actions against himself? Or was it perhaps a red herring released by the organization to get organizations like the U.S. government to spend countless hours and, and substantial resources trying to crack the file and discover what was in it? Um, to this day, nobody knows. Um, for me, I think this is one of the most interesting aspects of some of the artistic practice I've been in dealing with, is the ability of artists to offer us different perspectives on the very large quantities of information that we're dealing with. This um, sculpture it was made for Fabio Lantanzi Antinori for the Open Data Institute. And it actually involves live data mining of the internet, which, while the data mining is going on, is seeking out references to crimes against humanity. And as it finds these references, the obelisk changes um, its appearance from opaque to transparent. So it's a kind of real-time reminder of how much uh, uh, violence and aggression is still taking place um, across the world. Fabio's work I find particularly interesting here. This was shown during a, an event that we were involved with with the Victoria and Albert Museum three, four years ago. Um, and it's called Data Flags. And it's one of a series of works um, in which uh, Fabio has engaged with large-scale uh, financial information. And here, um, he's using information relating to the collapse of Lehman Brothers at the time of the, of the crash. And um, the sculpture recalls a sort of corporate flag, corporate banner, but as you touch it, it uses a material called conductive ink to actually enable you to hear a sung sound sculpture um, that uh, uh, is derived um, from the uh, financial data relating to the fall of the Lehman Brothers. So these types of artistic practice are giving us new ways of thinking about the very large quantities of data um, that we're now engaging with. Indeed, here's another recent work by Fabio, a sculpture where he's using carefully made, uh, custom-made perfume in order to uh, create a kind of sensory experience uh, of this data. And again, I think this is helpful in thinking about how we deal with large quantities of data. Indeed, thinking about different types of sensory engagement with data might even take us into making models of data. There's a, a, a work by Ian Gwilt um, uh, and a Japanese collaborator, Kotari Sanu. Um, uh, Ian is based, again, at Sheffield Hallam University, and it's a sculpture uh, made from climate data. Um, uh, which is another interesting way of thinking about data, as indeed is Mitchell Whitelaw's measuring cup, um, which is actually a representation of 150 years of Sydney temperature data. So I think this type of practice is challenging us to think about the way in which we deal with data. And I, what I find fascinating um, is the way in which this type of artistic practice can actually intersect with what we as archivists and historians are doing, 
And sometimes, um, you know, increasingly, I think, um, one finds that the work of researchers itself takes on an artistic quality. I think that's particularly evident with the work of Tim Sherratt in Australia. For example, in his Real Face of White Australia project, which scans through uh, immigration files to reveal that the idea of white Australia uh, was always a bit of a fabrication. And when you look at these faces automatically pulled out from the files, it's almost like it's a huge art installation. And indeed, if we go on to the next file and look at it in the experimental browser, if you could hit that link, uh, Emily, um, then we can see how that comes out. So it's, to my mind, it, it's making a historical point, it's using the archives in a different way, it's mining the archives in a different way, but as it comes down like this, and if we screen, uh, scroll down, Emily, you kind of, it's almost like an art installation in itself, and that's very evident with a lot of Tim's work. Great. Yeah, they pull up. Thanks, Emily. We'll go on to the next slide. I think the most, one of the most compelling works of Tim's in this respect is um, his redactions, which again automatically pull through um, elements in state files that have been redacted that have been crossed out for security purposes before the document is made open. And that's kind of very interesting perspective on what would otherwise be a very perhaps frustrating purpose. The redactions actually almost in themselves become like a work of art, uh, almost reminiscent of this um, uh, artist book, um, which is treating a, a line from a poem by Mallarmé. And these look almost like redactions. And this borderline between the archivist and the artist, I think, is beautifully illustrated um, in Tim Sharat's recent work, The Redaction Zoo, where a clerk, uh, presumably charged with redaction but not finding his work very interesting, um, uh, has, has made humorous interventions um, in redacting um, uh, the files, uh, again to the point where it becomes an art installation and has been exhibited last year as an art installation. So I think this will be our final video, uh, Emily. So that gives you the idea. Thanks very much, Emily, uh, for that. Um, so in conclusion, I think what I hope I've illustrated from some of these projects is their potential for rich dialogue between artistic practice and the archives uh, and the ways in which there are shared concerns that I think we can helpfully discuss. I think, though, that does raise questions of how we take that forward. Um, and that is where I would end, because there are risks in this discussion that one or other of us can be using uh, uh, the other for our own purposes. The risk of instrumentalization. It would be very easy for me to sort of strong arm an artist into trying to design some particularly fancy piece of visualization, 
which has nothing to do with his or her own artistic concern. And it's very difficult to know how, and that's an issue in all types of interdisciplinary work, as to how do we best develop joint work around the archive while respecting our own different practices and concerns. It's very easy for me as a, hist as a medieval historian, as a starting point on this, to sort of forget about that while I'm working with these interesting artists. But I need to equally bring my own material to the table. And a lot of these projects do raise kind of wider lessons about interdisciplinarity. As I mentioned, Eduardo Katz, whose works very much influenced me in thinking about this, has been a pioneer in creating what's called bioart, which involves often biological manipulation to create works of art like a flower that embodies some of the artist's own DNA. Now, I'm, one wonders how far that's really kind of an amateurish science involved in art or whether it's really taking things forward. How does that best work? Where does the level of real interdisciplinarity lie? And I think the key question, and one that I think is a, a, a vital one for organisations like the National Archives, is to think about what kind of dialogue best supports that form of new cooperation and cross-dissemination. Thank you very much for your attention, and thank you, Emily, for your help with the slides. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, all rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.